0: I'm Julia Gerlock, managing editor of No Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations Podcast Series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Ingersoll and Agri Solutions. For more information about Ingersoll, visit them at www.ingersolltillage.com. That's I-N-G-E-R-S-O-L-L-T-I-L-L-A-G-E.com. In this episode, Frank Lessiter, founding editor of No-Till Farmer, sits down at the National No-Tillage Conference with Phil Needham, owner of Needham Ag Technologies. Phil came to the U.S. from England in the 1980s to work for Imperial Chemical Industries and went on to build a business manufacturing and distributing products that work in a no-till system. Phil talks about his experience bringing high-yield intensive wheat management programs to the U.S., why residue management matters, the three things that got no-till started worldwide, and more. Now, here are Frank and Phil.
1: Today, we're talking with uh, Phil Needham from Needham Technologies. And uh, Phil, tell us a little bit about your business. But let's start, go back 30 years ago, and you, you somehow immigrated from the UK to the US. And what brought you over here? So I grew up on a family
2: farm on the eastern coast of England, about 120 miles north of London. Kind of a long chain of events, but we were part of a farmer's group. And the guest speaker at that farmer's group was a gentleman from ICI that had recently been in the U.S. And he'd recently been doing some work for a businessman in Kentucky called Billy Joe Miles. Sure, I know Billy. Uh, He passed away last March 13th, actually, Uh, But he owned a chain of fertilizer, retail stores, seed fertilizer, chemicals, both retail and wholesale distribution. And he told the fellow from ICI that he was looking for somebody to come in and expand his crop management group that he'd started in 1986. So in 1989, I had the opportunity to come across to the U.S., uh, spent a couple of weeks with him, touring some of his facilities, learning more about his, his operation, accepted the offer, and then was able to
1: start later that year. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of got started on high-yielding, high-intensive wheat programs, bringing what they were doing in the U.K. to the U.S., Right? am I right?
2: Yeah, if you look at wheat histories, and they've somewhat stabilized over the past 12 or 15 years, perhaps, but if you look at what wheat yields have done in Europe from, say, the 70s to the 80s to the 90s, there was a dramatic increase in wheat yields from the equivalent of 60 to 80, all the way up to about 135 bushels per acre average across all kinds of wheat across the United Kingdom. So Billy Joe was well aware of what a lot of the Europeans were doing. I mean, it wasn't unusual for field yields to exceed 180 or 200 bushels per acre. Again, there was a national average of about 135. And they've increased somewhat since then. But he was really excited about increasing yields because he knew and understood. Now, you've got to realize in the background, he was selling seed fertilizer and chemicals. But he was obviously looking to to protect the the farmers long term to make it sustainable. And, And over the past 30 years, if you look at Kentucky state wheat yields, they've gone from the low 30s to the mid to high 70s. So the group that Billy Joe brought over, including myself, I don't need all the credit, there was a big group of people that he brought over, but the group has contributed to more than a doubling in the Kentucky state wheat yield. And then we branched out into surrounding states, then we went west to Texas, Oklahoma, up to North Dakota. So that group had a pretty big influence on wheat production starting out.
1: But I think one of the things you brought with us is the fact that we ought to be fertilizing wheat And probably using
2: fungicides, right? Fungicides were new when we first came over, and you've got to recognise that prior to me coming over in Europe, there was dozens, literally dozens of different modes of action and fungicides available for wheat. When we came across to this country in 89, I think there was Benelate and Belaton and and Mancozeb, and that was pretty much it. I think TILT was released in eighty-nine or ninety. So it was fungicides were relatively new. But yeah, we learned early on, we did a lot of replicated research. I mean, we had full-time R&D personnel on staff that did a lot of research over a lot of sites across a lot of states to really better understand the basics of crop management and what's required to increase yields because the growing season was different, the varieties different, the soils were different. Many things were different, but by using replicated trials and a lot of them, we could assemble a very sound database in which we could start learning which inputs, you know, paid off, which ones were economic on a, on a regular, consistent basis. So it took a lot of research to make it work. But we learned early on that it took fertility to build the yield, then you've got to protect it with fungicides. So it's pretty common today to use two or three different fungicide right. timings in the same growing season, even here in the U.S., So where you were in Kentucky, a lot of this wheat was double cropped with beans? I would say almost all of the wheat is double cropped in Kentucky. We've got, we're far enough south, wheat is often planted in October, not always, but most times it's planted in October. And the wheat obviously comes off depending on the year, but the 10th of June, end of June, something like that. And most people are running a no-till drill or air seeder or a planter right behind the combine. So yeah, almost all of the wheat would be double crop with soybeans. And if we get decent moisture, we can get 40, 50 bushel beans, sometimes more, double crop after wheat. So the dollar volume that you generate in on an acre gets to be pretty attractive from an economy perspective.
1: So when I first got going in the 70s with no-till farmer, those farmers in Kentucky and Tennessee were also planting barley. But barley kind of dropped out of the picture, didn't it? There was maybe 10 or
2: 15,000 acres of barley produced in the state of Kentucky for a few years. But more recently, the prices have deteriorated to the point in which there's very little barley. The big attraction to barley was price and the fact that you could plant soybeans week, 10 days, two weeks earlier, yeah, you'd yeah. get a double crop bean yield yeah. that was 10 or, or more bushels better oftentimes because of the earlier planting date. So when did you leave Miles and go out on your own? We went out on our own in, in 2005. So, uh, yeah, 2005, we started Needamag Technologies and we're based in Calhoun, Kentucky. And you got... About five employees, full time equivalents. Yeah, including the family members, we've got about eight people total. So we're just a small company. My later years at Miles Farm Supply, managing their Opticrop program, you know, I spent a lot of my time hiring people, training people, and that's not really what I wanted to do. <laughs> I'm an in field type guy, and you know, what we do now is we still do a lot of the agronomy work. We still do a lot of the wheat management work. But we've also got a parts business in which we sell parts and upgrades, primarily for drills, air seeders, and planters, just trying to get better stands in which we can generate those higher yields that we needed. So tell
1: me about the accessories that you would put on a planter.
2: I consider myself an expert in stand counts. What I mean is I've probably done as many stand counts as most people in the world. And what I'm doing is... After we set and calibrate drills in the field, which is part of the service that we provide for growers with wheat management, you know, whenever it comes up three, four weeks after planting time, depending on the temperatures, we measure a yard of row and we count the number of plants per yard of row. And we'll do that multiple times in a field so we get a a good data set in which we can start drawing some conclusions on. Obviously, we're looking for the number as an average We're also looking for the range of plants per yard of row. And I was always frustrated because you may have 40 plants per yard of row in this row, then you'd move over 10 feet, 20 feet, whatever that distance is. You may have 25, you may have 10, and then there may be other areas with 60 or 70. And when you're trying to manage wheat like we do in Europe for high yields, you've got to have uniform fields. Uniform fields means higher yields is what we've often said. So I started looking and trying to diagnose why some of these differences in plant stands were present. And many times the slot was open, Mm -hmm. it didn't get closed. Maybe there wasn't a rain within a week or two after planting time and those seeds didn't emerge because the slot didn't get closed and the seed dried out. So in some of them examples, it may rain later on and the seed emerged, but it would be late. And then you've got a plant that's behind that heads out later. It's very difficult to time a fungicide if the plant heads out later. So I recognize there was a lot of opportunities to improve seeding equipment that weren't available. And the challenge that we've got in the industry, and even this is still true today, you know, your big companies, worldwide corporations, you know, they're building equipment that can work anywhere in the world, which means they're building a good product. I'm not saying they're not, but it means they're building a product that works about anywhere which gives you some weaknesses if you move that equipment into high-residue no-till, it may not cut as well, it may not close the slot as well, but as an average in most conditions it does fine. So we saw an opportunity, there was a niche there to start designing and and manufacturing and and distributing products that were better suited for no-till. To close the slot better, to press seeds down into the slot better little things that turned out to make a big difference when you're looking for them uniform stand counts at seed and time.
1: So did you become a proponent of no-till after you got to the US or did you know about it back home?
2: All right, so full disclaimer, (laughs) coming from Europe, there's not a lot of no-till, okay? For lots of different reasons we could get into, but it would be a while. But So when I first came to this country, no-till was a challenge for two or three reasons. Number one as we've kind of discussed a lot of the no-till seeding equipment wasn't adequate enough to seed into corn. Now it's easier to no-till into soybeans, there's not a lot of residue, but most people in Kentucky had a corn, wheat, soybean rotation, three crops in two years. And that was the rotation that they could make the most money with, okay? So wheat after corn is a challenge, always has been, probably always will be. And the seeding equipment available at that time was not very well adapted. Plus, a lot of the wheat varieties we had didn't have a lot of tolerance to Fusarium or head scab as we know it. More recently, the varieties have improved. We've got and still getting new fungicides that are more active on Fusarium, which helps us on the head scab. And we're doing a better job knowing and understanding how to set up equipment to plant into no-till. But starting out, no-till was was really a challenge. I I had the opportunity for many years to work with Dr. Lloyd Murdoch from the University of Kentucky, great researcher, did a lot of work with him. We did a lot of what we call cooperative research, which is taking it beyond small plots into fields in which we had replicated strips, conventional no-till, farmer-scale equipment on, on farm. And I think over... I'd have to look back at the data, but over 25 or maybe 30 locations, if you average all the data together, I think we got the difference between conventional and no-till down to 1.8 or two bushels per acre. So I'm not gonna say the no-till is gonna yield more than conventional, but what I'm gonna say is, if you look at the economics, the tillage equipment, the tractors, the soil quality, the lack of soil erosion, which is huge with these big rains that we've getting no-till just becomes so important, and more and more farmers are jumping on that. They're recognizing the benefits. But no-till's not for everyone. Maybe we can get into that later on, but most of the producers that I work with are no-till, have been no-till wheat for many years, and they're very successful doing it. Let's talk
1: about that a little, because I was going to ask you the question, why hasn't no-till caught on in the UK and in Europe? Tillage covers a multitude of sins, (laughs) okay?
2: and maybe later on we'll discuss this, but residue management out of the back of the combine is critical with no-till. I've had farmers approach me that I know and I've been past their farms, and I knew they wasn't spreading residue very well with the combine, I'd seen it, and they'd come to me and they'd say, I'm gonna no-till my wheat this fall, or I'm gonna no-till my whatever, and I'm gonna say to them, or I did say to them, you need to fix your residue management first. Because if you've got a 30 foot head or a 40 foot head and it's spreading residue half the width of the head, right, that's not going to work. So when I said a minute ago, tillage covers a multitude of sins. If you can't spread residue very well, if you till it, you you bury you're not you're not covering all the sins, but you're getting rid of some of the residue management problems. So you've got to start out spreading residue, and absolutely, I'm a strong advocate of no-till. But unless a guy can spread residue evenly at harvest time, I don't encourage
1: guys to start no-tilling. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me I remember back in the 70s when there was a little bit of no-till in the UK, they were burning the straw. And even the people that were no-tilling had to quit when they banned burning the straw. Am I right? That's right. Two
2: or three things helped no-till get started worldwide. One was the John Deere 750 no-till drill. Absolutely. Two was Roundup. Right. Three was Roundup Ready Soybeans, but there isn't hardly any soybeans in England to even discuss that. But, yeah, John Deere made a big advance with their no-till drill, the 750. There wasn't a lot of those imported into England. More recently, they sell the 750A, which is a variant of it that's a folding air seeder. But there's not a lot of there's not a lot of those there's not a lot of there's not a lot of no-till equipment companies providing no-till equipment but the challenge is with a lot of western europe and even even eastern europe to an extent a lot of them guys have tilled so long they think that tillage is normal now more recently they're moving more towards minimum till but and, and don't get me wrong, no-till is growing at a, at a relatively slow pace in, in Western Europe. It's growing, but it's going at a pretty slow pace.
1: So why were the Brits in the 70s able to make no-till work by burning the straw? That's getting rid of that residue that's okay. such a
2: challenge. But what they started running into was all the grass, weeds. Uh, more recently, we got some better herbicides that's better able to take care of the black grass and some of the grass weeds, but they had a lot of weed problems that came in with the no-till. But if you can keep that residue on the soil surface, which they wasn't doing when they were burning, they were hurting themselves because the weeds were just right. coming through. If you can cover the ground with a heavy matter residue, that's probably one of your biggest allies from a point of view of helping reduce weeds. And I think a lot of people have realized that. But rotation too. You can't plant wheat after wheat in a no-till system in Europe. If you're, if you're raising 200 bushels of wheat just for a round number, you're not going to be successful planting wheat back into that. And some guys want to plant wheat after wheat two or three times. But they've learnt, you know, if you plant spring beans or spring peas, you can no-till those crops into, into wheat. So it takes a little bit more management, a lot more management really, To be able to no-till in Europe in a high-volume residue system with a wet growing season, with a lot of frequent rains that makes no-tilling a challenge too.
0: We'll rejoin the conversation with Frank and Phil in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor Ingersoll and Solutions, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. Ingersoll specializes in seedbed solutions. Whatever seedbed challenges you have, Ingersoll can give you the right tools to get the job done. For more information, visit them at Ingersolltillage.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little known no-till farmer fact.
1: Over the years, we've had at least three people go cold turkey on no-till when they hadn't done a single acre in the past. I remember when we first started no-till farmer, a farmer down in Illinois called me one day and said he was going to no-till for the first time on about a thousand acres. That was pretty scary to me because I think most no-tillers should start on a smaller acreage. The same thing happened years later in Wisconsin when another farmer went from no no no-tillage one year to over 900 acres the next year. In the first time that we held the National No-Tillage Conference in Indianapolis, I remember a Michigan farmer called me up about six weeks later saying he had sold all his high-horsepower tractors and all his tillage tools because of what he learned about no-till at the first conference. He went from zero acres that year to over 1,000 acres the next year. Is that the way to go? No, it's pretty scary, but all three of these people made it work.
0: Now, let's get back to our conversation with Frank and Phil Needham.
1: I know that you've spent some time in the offices of combine manufacturers talking about residue management and spreading. Tell us a little about what's going on there and what uh, some of the pitfalls have been. Yeah, it's been a challenge. I, I guess at, at
2: one point or another, I've, I've done work with most manufacturers A lot of it's been seeding equipment, some of it's been residue management, but I had the opportunity, it's 12 or 15 years ago now, I had the opportunity to, to, uh, I guess, spend time with some of the engineers and marketers at John Deere, at their Silvis Illinois R&D facility, big glass, nice, fancy office, and sat around a table with marketing and and engineers. And one of the marketing guys may have been playing devil's advocate when he said this, and I kind of think he was, but he said, farmers don't care about residue management. And around that Silvis, Illinois area, you know, everything's tilled. They didn't care. I don't doubt it. But the reason I was there or the reason I was asked to to go there, I think, was to represent more of the no-till farmers. You get into Kansas, for example, I mean, many more states than Kansas... But if you're planting wheat after wheat and the custom cutter's running a 40 foot head and he's spreading residue 20 or 30 feet, and you're trying to no till another wheat crop into that streak of residue, it's a massive problem. Then you've got 10, 15, 20 feet without any residue residue at all, and that soil dries out and it doesn't come up because there's no residue cover, where there's so much residue we can't cut through it. It's just a massive problem. So I showed them some pictures and some slides and explained how important residue management is for many farmers across the country and around the world. And uh, more recently, they did introduce their advanced power cast, which was originally a German built, and it's built by deer themselves now. Uh, they call it the advanced power cast tailboard. It's the big European chopper. It's the next step up from the power cast, but it's far better spreading residue evenly. Prior to that, they were claiming, in some marketing materials, 50-foot spread width, and I've, I've never seen. It would be very unusual to spread 50 feet with a, with a power cast tailboard, but if it ever spread close to 50 feet, it wasn't even. It would spread, spread a heavy band out to both sides with little to nothing in the middle, which didn't work at all. But they have at least brought out or released their advanced power cast tailboard which is a massive improvement over power cast which was an improvement over just a standard chopper and tailboard out the back configuration case AH has released and they're selling quite a lot of them now they've got what they call the rice chopper and spreader two big spinning spreaders on the back similar to what a 2188 2388 used to have but they're hydraulically controlled and adjustable from the cab. So those are improvements. New Holland has their Opti spread, a large pair of spinning spreaders on the back, which also do a pretty good job spreading. So some of these European technologies on the chopping and spreading uh, front have, have made their way into North America, which was certainly welcome. But the challenge that we have in, in general with residue is the headers are getting bigger than the advancements and developments at the back of the combine. So we've almost reached a point now in which headers are getting bigger, but they've not done anything better with the choppers to get that extra five or 10 feet at the back. So it's still a challenge, but. It's certainly been improved. So are the
1: add-on manufacturers still having an
2: impact? Uh, they've had some challenges uh, for sure. Some of the bigger manufacturers have copied some of their designs and they're just little companies without the financial backing to challenge the patent infringements. And some of the bigger manufacturers have just flat-out copied their products at the demise of the little guys, which were really the innovators.
1: Exactly. Right. They
2: were designing... Mean, leo redicarp
1: mm-hmm.
2: i've spent some time with him one of the best minds one of the best guys you'll just an absolute genius on residue management and they still make choppers and spreaders but they designed some very good chopping and, and spreading technologies but sadly
1: they were copied by some of the bigger manufacturers talk about the headers the conventional headers the uh, shelburne header draper headers Yeah,
2: I can tell you a lot about the Shelburne Reynolds head. Billy Joe Miles, the guy that brought me to the U.S., bought the first stripper header in the U.S. And then he became a dealer based upon the performance of the stripper header in Kentucky starting out. It worked extremely well in that double crop system, Mm -hmm. leaving residue tall and standing. You could no-till through that tall wheat straw, extremely easy. And they took off very quickly. And he became a dealer for the U.S. So he was selling, I don't remember how many he was selling in the early years, hundreds in the early years. Then they broke it down into, I think, four regions. And then more recently, they started going direct. But yeah, Billy Joe brought the first stripper headers to the U.S. and they were extremely successful managing residue. And I've told many people this, a stripper header leaves the residue as uniform as it was planted. So if you can do a good job planting the wheat, for example, that stripper header just combs through the the wheat straw, taking the grain and a little chaff and and a few leaves, but it leaves that residue tall and standing. So it's super to no-till into. You know, it cuts down your, your evaporation rate because there's no wind movement at the soil surface, but a very good system. More recently, because stripper headers can only really be used in cereals, unless you're in... North Dakota, maybe there's some peas and some flax and things you can harvest with them. That's a little bit different region. But because in Kentucky, for example, they're really only used on cereals and not able to be used on soybeans, more recently, guys are going to the bigger draper heads. There's a little bit more capacity, a little bit easier feeding, more even feeding into a combine with a draper head. So the stripper headers have tapered off a little bit, but they're still very good products. Okay, Draper head, what
1: what height would you like to cut at?
2: I mean if it's wheat that we're cutting to plant soybeans into, I'd like to run that head as high as possible while getting all the heads. The taller we can leave that residue the better because you're not running it through that combine, giving that combine an opportunity to screw up the residue distribution. So as high as I could cut it, if you can leave it knee high, depends on the height of your wheat,
1: but if you can leave the wheat knee high and get all the grain, I'd leave it that tall. I always remember Harry Young once telling me that when we're no-tilling, we're working a strip three to four inches wide. And he said, we're still moving too much dirt. And his idea was a sewing machine. Are we going to see us narrowing down this ridge where we plant or doing something different? Let's talk about what might be coming in the future. And they're doing it some in Europe, but the reliability of it isn't there yet.
2: There's just too many moving parts. But you can go to some of the big farm shows in Europe and you can see planters that are variable width. And they've basically got telescoping linkages in which you can stretch this planter out to plant maybe 12 rows on 36 inches and you can bring it into half the width and plant 15 inches. So you could plant different crops. Uh, I think you can get some a little narrower than that now, but I see some opportunities to have some planters if they can get the reliability down to to be able to move the rows in and out. That would let you plant corn on the wider rows and bring them in and plant soybeans. Nutrient placement is really the big thing that a lot of guys, and some guys have really jumped on this, but nutrient placement gets to be really important. Getting a band of fertilizer alongside and underneath that row, not on top, roots grow down. But being able to place a band of fertilizer underneath that row gets to be pretty important. So whatever planter it is, Has got to be set up to place fertilizer and maybe we're putting some insecticide in the row or a fungicide off to the side or vice versa that's where the future is it's placing that nutrient and and there's some different systems out there now in which they're they're squirting a, a small band of fertilizer in close proximity to the seed or slightly further away for seed safety you know so if you drop a seed Within an inch of that seed, you can squirt a little band of fertilizer. That technology is available now. It's relatively small and a niche market. But this whole fertilizer placement industry is pretty big. And maybe the next step would be some more, and this to a limited limited extent, but extent now, but more crop sensing and more soil sensing. I see down the road, you'll have some sensors on the planter, which will be able to sense more than just nitrogen. But if you're in an area of the field that a really high yielding crop the year before and little to no residual nitrogen, maybe it'll bump up the nitrogen rate. And then as you drop down into another area for whatever reason that the, the soil nitrogen's higher, I think it will back that nitrogen rate back down. So judicious use of fertilizer placed close to that row is probably where the big opportunities are.
1: Normally we In the Midwest here, that's not double crop. Full season would come off in late July, early August. Is there a place for cover crops before you plant corn or soybeans the next spring?
2: There definitely would be there, all the way up into Michigan, perhaps Ontario, because you've got a nice window there to get a cover crop established. And the other thing to go along with it, I mean, some of these cover crops need some fertilizer to get them started too, so we're almost back to the same Topic we were a minute ago, but yeah, there's some big opportunities, Indianapolis north to Ontario, let's say, where you could plant a, a very diverse mix, ideally of, of of cover crops between grasses and broad leaves, uh, legumes and, and and not legumes. But yeah, I would strongly encourage those wheat producers to look at a cover crop. I think that would be an excellent option ahead of corn or or ahead of soybeans.
1: One of the hot topics right now among cover croppers is planting green, planting, not killing this cover crop until after you've planted maybe corn. Future in that?
2: Yeah, there is. Uh, there's some challenges. Uh, there's some challenges getting through it. There's some challenges getting some of these cover crops killed. But in my opinion, when and that's where this No-Till Conference and other conferences like this really excel, is getting farmers together because you may be in a round table and one farmer may have found out one little thing. Maybe he rolled it. Maybe he used something else in addition to roundup to try and burn it down faster to stop it getting really leggy when it was small, emerging through the residue. That's where events like this really kick in because the no-till crowd, which is what I'm going to call this conference group, there's a lot of innovative farmers here. There's a lot of thinkers. And many times they're what I call sleepers. They know how to do things, but they're not (laughs) going to publicly tell everybody all about it. But if you obviously start talking to them in the corridors and you say, what about this? Are you doing that? Oh, yeah, I've been doing that for 12 or 15 years. But they wouldn't tell you. But, yeah, there's a lot of knowledge here. There's a lot of passion for no-till. And those are the kind of people you need to seek out and ask them and just say, hey, planting green, what do we need to do to make it work? And they'll give you a list of things. You know, it may be a fuller seasoned corn. It may be a fertilizer in the row. It may be a, a, a razor wheel up front to part the residue because the spike wheel wraps. It may be a roller in front of the tractor to push it down. A lot of them guys have been doing it and doing it for a few years successfully. So I encourage that. It just takes a much higher degree of management than just no-till.
1: Earlier said the two things that made no-till work, and I agree with you, was the John Deere 750 drill and Roundup. And there's lots of pressure on Roundup right now in the States. There's court cases saying it's causing cancer, and it's both sides of this issue. Mm-hmm. What would happen to the no-till acreage if glyphosate got banned? They've threatened to pull it in
2: Europe, in right. Western Europe. Recently, I think it's got extended for two years or three years, but that would be serious because many of the Western European countries don't have access to glyphosate to gramoxone, paraquat. Right. So if we lost glyphosate, we'd be able to revert back to, to an extent, paraquat and right. do okay. Which is
1: what got no-till started exactly. in the first place.
2: So it wouldn't be the end of the world mm. if we lost glyphosate. A lot of people would freak, but we could make some alterations. But in Europe, if we lose gramoxone and glyphosate, that's a bad problem for the producers that want a no-till. I mean, a really bad problem. So I hope that doesn't happen.
1: So the fact that glyphosate's been banned or hard to use in Europe. Seems to me that part of the problem was Monsanto tried to jam this down their throats. Am I right or am I wrong? They have. They've not
2: got the best (laughs) credibility. And they've been sold to...
1: Yeah, Bayer now has their problems.
2: Yes, they have. And maybe changing the name to an aspirin-associated company is going to help that. I don't know.
1: So, Phil, we get a few people at this conference from around the world. We'll get some people from Australia, a few from Europe. What's happening in other areas of the world that people are really innovative and in looking at crops, whether it's no-till or whether it's going to lead to something else?
2: I spend quite a bit of time in Australia. I'm over there almost every year. I wasn't there in, in, in 18, but I'm going to be there again in 19. Control traffic has exceeded and accelerated in Australia faster than anywhere else. And there's a lot of research behind it. There's a lot of practical farmers using it. And control traffic isn't for everyone, but I've got growers that I work with that have been using control traffic successfully for five, six, seven years now. And I really think control traffic is something that needs to be encouraged and promoted. I mean, there's so many direct things that you benefit from, from control traffic, but there's so many little things that we've learned that are so beneficial that the little things have often made more of a difference than the big things. But the control traffic, number one, is you're never planting or you shouldn't be planting a crop or a wheel track ran. So you're setting up a combine, for example, with a 12 row 30 foot head on the front on 30 inch centers and you're running not duals, you're running a pair of wheels on four meter centers or whatever that distance is. So then you set your tractor up and your air seeder up or your air car and your sprayer as a multiple of 30 feet passes, maybe a 90 or 100 foot boom. And there's all kinds of information on the web. You can Google it and spend hours reading it. But you're basically not planting a crop where your wheel tracks have been. And that is huge, especially if you're planting in higher moisture areas. You then have the ability to offset your rows by four inches or six inches. So your soybeans are are offset over from your wheat rows, or your corn rows are offset over from your soybean rows, or your soybean rows are offset from your corn rows which gives you some benefits in which you're never planting down a corn row, which you can do it with controlled traffic because the, the tractor's running RTK and maybe you got an RTK receiver on your, on your drill too. So you can control all of this, which is huge. Uh, you've also got the ability in which you can adjust, you know, some of your row units. If your row units are, like in wheat, planting a wheel track, then you can, you know you're always in that wheel track, you can turn the down pressure up. So there's just a lot of things that we're seeing from a benefits perspective going to control traffic. But again, it's not for everyone. It takes a system and a farmer wanting to make it work, and he's going to have to purchase sometimes different equipment that matches up with all of the system widths that all be able to work together. But I would really think control traffic is part of that high yield package. And it doesn't have to be in drier areas. I kind of associate Australia generally as a dry continent, and, and most of it it is. But even in higher moisture regions of Australia and irrigated areas, they're still using controlled traffic. You can look at the research, 12 15 20% sometimes responses in yield using a controlled traffic-based system to without. So I'm a big fan of controlled traffic, okay?
1: One of the pioneers here in controlled traffic was Bill Richards at mm-hmm. Circleville, Ohio, who I think has been using it since the 70s. Got hooked up with the guy at the National Soil Lab, and they've been doing it. But there's few people who've done it, and it's so easy today with GPS, and it could really fit the strip tillers. It
2: could. Uh, the challenge is, you know, if you buy a brand-new combine, they generally come with duals, and they generally come with wheels that are a given width apart. Well, then your tractors don't match that wheel space and you have to buy spacers or modify the combine and modify the tractor. Well, then your air car for your air seeder, assuming you've got an air seeder, they don't match it. So then it takes spaces to bring the wheels in or out to make it fit the track. If the manufacturers, and I've said this before, I don't think we've said this today, but if the manufacturers wanted no-till to work, this is what they'd <laughs> offer. And I've said this before, I mean, I've been on farms, there's there's one at Gettysburg, South Dakota, it's been a few years since I was on it, Uh, but there's a farm at Gettysburg, South Dakota, when I was there, I think they were farming 81 or 8400 acres of row crops, Uh, and we also, and they had one tractor, an air seeder with a carrot, and a planter. Now, I think they had some cattle too, and they had a loader tractor and some other things, but... Their farm tractor was a front-wheel assist, like a 225, 250-horse row crop front-wheel assist tractor. That was their tractor, okay? That was their only tractor for, for, the, right. for the farm operations, apart from the of tractors for livestock. And where I'm going with this is, can you imagine how few tractors John Deere or Case IH or Agco would sell if everybody went no-till? I mean, they want to sell tractors, high horsepower, big four-wheel drives. They want to sell rippers. They want to sell discs. They want to sell the big wide field cultivators. That's their bread and butter.
1: Exactly. It
2: takes high horsepower. And if you look at the furrow magazine or any of the corporate magazines, there's no no no-till in there. They'll show a no-till planter working in a field in central Illinois that looks like it's been worked four or six inches deep with hardly a speck of residue anywhere in the photo frame. They don't want no-till. no till and that's a challenge we've got in the industry. A lot of farmers look to the manufacturers for guidance and leadership, but they're not promoting no-till. It's in their interest to sell
1: big tractors,
2: rippers. And that's So
1: challenge. we got some people around the world doing some research on 65 and 70-horsepower autonomous tractors. You might buy three or four of them and run, run a planter or air drill. Yeah. Uh, combines from Asia. Kubota's got combines in Asia that you could buy for $35,000. Maybe in the U.S. you buy four of those and run them from a laptop. Is this going to happen or not? I mean, this goes back to the major manufacturers who may not be interested in these. Yeah, there's certainly
2: going to be some opportunities there. The challenge that we have, especially if you go north and west, I mean, North Dakota is kind of what I call the epicenter of finding help. You know, so many guys in that area with the oil patches stealing all the good help. I mean, it's crazy how much them oil patches are paying rural labor and the farmers just aren't able to find good help. So in those areas, especially in Western Canada too, to an extent, you know, having an autonomous tractor, you know, that could eliminate two or three people would be massive. If you could run it 24 hours a day and keep it out of the sloughs and the sinkholes,
1: you know, I think that would be massive. Some of our farm equipment dealers are waking up to the fact that if we went here, they'd have to be providing parts and service 24 hours a day. I mean, if a guy's running one of these tractors 24 hours a day and it breaks down at 2 a.m., that's right, he wants the tech out there. That's going to be a challenge <laughs> for them,
2: so there's going to be some labor resource re- required right. for
1: that at a cost, that's right. right. Well, Phil, thanks very much. No, you were very it. intriguing and uh, a lot of innovative ideas. You're always a good source of information. Thank you I very much. It.
0: Before we wrap up this episode, Frank is going to answer a listener question about the early days of no-till.
1: Here's a no-till question we've gotten several times: Is who had the first no-till planter, and that? led to the development by Alice Chalmers and of their no-till planter, which was introduced in 1966. There was an um, implement engineer at Alice Chalmers named May- Maynard Walberg, and he came up with the idea, and it was designed... They started with a 17-inch diameter coulter. It was mounted on an Alice chambers 500 series toolbar during the 60s and 70s. It was designed to slice through crop residue or sod while preparing a two and a half inch wide seed bed ahead of the rope unit for planting. To accommodate the colders, Alice Chalmers engineered designed their no till planter frames with three toolbars to handle 20 to 40 inch rows. The first toolbar held the colders, the second toolbar carried the fertilizer boxes or tanks, and the planter units were attached to the third. By the early 1970s, the company had offered three colder blades for varying soils and field conditions. Its full two and one half inch fluid coulter proved to be the most popular model for most no-tillers. That was the start of no-till by the major manufacturers and it's done nothing but increase since that time.
0: Thanks to Frank Lessiter and Phil Needham for sharing their stories and memories about these no-till innovations and challenges. Similar stories can also be found in Frank's book, from Maverick to Mainstream, which is available at notillfarmer.com forward slash no till maverick. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Ingersoll and Agar Solutions, for helping to make this No Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at JGurlock at or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach.